Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where we are continuing with the letter D. So we're going to be going through a selection of different Ds this week. Butler, who are your Ds that you're going to be covering? Uh, well, Tom Wheatley, uh, as soon as you didn't introduce yourself. <laughs> no need. No need. I've got a couple of really interesting people for two of my favourite James Bond films. I'm going to be talking about Paul Dane, who was one of the writers on Goldfinger, and Tracy DiVincenzo, played by Diana Rigg in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Yes, I put my teeth back in. And Brendan Duffy, who have you got? (laughs) This is all very formal. Uh, (laughs) I've got Roger Deakins, cinematographer on Skyfall, and Max Demby, played by Andrew Scott in Spectre. Hmm, exciting. I've also got Len Dayton, who's um, a quite famous British author, and I'll be talking about Dink, the character from Goldfinger. So, you ready to start? Let's get cracking. D is for Deakins, Sir Roger Alexander Deakins, CBE. He is an English cinematographer born in 1949 in Devon. Just in case people don't know what a cinematographer is, because I don't know if we've covered... Have we covered cinematographers before? I'm not sure. I don't think so. Yeah, so just just to briefly let people know what they do. So they work with the directors, the camera crew and the lighting department and very much uh, to get the look, the framing, the mood for a film or TV programme. And so that's what Roger Deakins does. Very well, he does it too. Incredibly well. So he, his career, so his life started, he he attended art college from an early age in Bath and he studied graphic design. But while he was doing that course, that's where he discovered his love for photography. So after college, he applied for the newly opened National Film School and they denied denied his application because his photography was considered not filmic enough, which... You know, that's quite crazy now to, to think that. Um, so he spent the year just sort of milling about. And he says this on his podcast, actually, that he, he just sort of was waiting for the following year where he was told that if he applied again, he would get in. And that's what he did. What, he applied again. What's his, what's and, his podcast called? 
I mean, that's later on. You've, you've. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Is it just called? I'm not the prepared rip- for this. I'm not prepared for this. <laughs> uh, Why don't you leave it as a surprise for later? Yeah, uh, I think it's a surprise. Tease. What a tease. <laughs> so yeah, he got in the following year to the National Film School, and that was in 1972. So after graduating from there, he started off in documentaries and he went to Africa and um, he also covered the round the world yacht race, uh, which meant it was nine months as a crew member filming the documentary. Quite an experience, I imagine. Uh, But his first dramatic project was a miniseries called Walcott. It's about a detective working in the east end of London. And so the camera work that he'd shown impressed his former schoolmate who he'd met at the National Film School, called Michael Radford. So he got him involved with a 1983 film called Another Time, Another Place. And this film was screened at Cannes, and it was really well received. And so they teamed up again for 1984. And then throughout the 80s, this is where Deakins was really sort of making a name for himself with in, in Britain, working on, on British projects, uh, such as Defence of the Realm, Sid and Nancy. White Mischief was another feature with Michael Radford and Stormy Monday. So after he's carving out this career for himself, we reach 1991 and the Coen brothers have showed interest. And so for Barton Fink, they get him in and he says they'd seen some of the work I'd done and its variety. We hit it off straight away on Barton Fink. There is now an enormous amount of trust between us and a proper understanding. It's hard when you're working with someone for the first time to gain their confidence, even if they like what you've done before. With the Coens, each film is very different and so almost a new experience each time. And I feel as if I'm still learning all the time too. That's something he goes on to talk about in his podcast as well. Each project is completely new. He, he, he's very humble about the whole thing that he's always learning. So yeah, that was the start of a, a, a relationship with the Coen brothers where he he works with them a lot as we'll, we'll go through. So then in 1994... So he's working in America now and he's admitted to the American Society of Cinematographers and he works on the Shawshank Redemption. And this is where he he earns his first Academy Award nomination. I didn't know he worked on that. That's amazing. Mm. So that shot, the incredibly famous shot of Andy Dufresne in the rain coming out of the tunnel or if he's got to the other side, that is a scene that he doesn't actually like. He doesn't like the lighting. He said, that's one of those that I hate. I overlit it. In the script, it was a much longer sequence. Andy comes out of the sewer pipe, goes to the river, crosses the field, and there's a whole sequence where he gets on the train. In our schedule, we only had a night to shoot the whole thing. And I was like, that ain't going to happen. So we shot him coming out of the tunnel and struggling up the river. By the time we got all the equipment there, we did that high shot and ended on that because it was a good way to shorten that whole sequence. It actually works much better than the extended sequence would have done. And yeah, it does. How It's an iconic... I think they used, it on, they used it on the poster, didn't they, as well? That's right, yeah. yeah. He then went on to get two further Academy Award nominations for Fargo in 1996 and Kundun in 1997. In 2000, he worked with the Coen brothers again on Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And he spent two months fine-tuning the whole look of that. So have you both seen this? Yeah. Yeah. So that very yellow hue, desaturated hue, it's got to the whole film. That's what he, he, he worked to get that, that look really right there. And it was the first ever feature film to be digitally colour corrected in its entirety. 
uh, and that earned him his fourth Academy Award nomination. So you'll see now, these are all nominations. <laughs> so very frustrating. He's getting nominated, but he's not winning. 2008, he receives two Oscar nominations, and these are sixth and his seventh for the assassination of Jesse James via the coward Robert Ford, another great oh, film. Oh boy, what a yeah. classic. Yeah, and No Country for Old Men. Oh, another classic. Yeah, two nominations in one in one year. Fantastic. Nominations again, though. So he works with the Coens on True Grit, and that's their 11th time they've worked together. And he receives his ninth Oscar nomination. <clears throat> wow. At this point, you're getting itchy. You get a bit of a Scorsese, isn't it? It's like, oh. So we get to 2012, and he's signed on for Skyfall because he's worked with Sam Mendes on Jarhead and Revolutionary Road. And for this, he receives another Academy Award nomination for Best Cinematography. And he says, Frankly, the only reason I did Skyfall was Sam. Haven't ever done action films as such. The things I've done have been much more in the way of personal dramas. Was I surprised that Sam wanted to do it? Initially, yes. Then he came out to LA and we talked about it. At that point, I really understood his passion for it. He was always a bigger fan of the Bond movies than I was. But his enthusiasm and take on it was so interesting, I thought, how can I not do it? So, surprisingly, the majority of Skyfall was shot single camera. He says, Skyfall was the kind of film where you need to prep because there weren't a lot of setups and big sets to light and figure. But basically, Sam worked very much with the actors on the day to figure out each scene. Some of it was storyboarded, but even storyboarded references weren't plans we had to stick to. So it's quite a fluid shoot with a single camera. So keeping him on his toes. He then he didn't return to work with Mendes on Spectre. And he said, I loved working with Sam on Skyfall. I probably wouldn't have done a Bond movie with anybody else. He had a different take on it. And I think that film was far more character driven. And that's what drew me to it. I turned down working on the next Bond film. I was really torn. I would have loved to work with Sam again, but I just didn't feel I could bring anything really new to it. I really like to see someone else have the opportunity. Maybe you saw the script. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so then, starting with Prisoners in 2013, he begins a working relationship with Denis Villeneuve. And so they went on to collaborate on Sicario, Blade Runner 2049 uh, in 2017. Deakins earned Academy Award nominations for all three films. Wow. Yeah. For his work on Blade Runner 2049, he received his first Academy Award. It was his 14th nomination. And then on his 15th nomination, which was working with Sam Mendes again in 1917, he won again. So he got his second Academy Award. And obviously that's filmed and edited to appear as one uninterrupted take. uh, Something that when he... Learn of the concept he was quite apprehensive about it, how they were going to to shoot it and how that would affect his role yeah i bet uh in addition to his live action work he's also helped on the lighting and the look of uh animated films wally which also looks great rango rise of the guardians the crudes and how to train your dragon trilogy interesting um, very well lit yeah i imagine it's a different sort of way of dealing with things because you're not physically lighting it are you 
Yeah, I suppose for a, a person who focuses the cinematography and the lighting, it's the same. The, the end product is the same all the time, isn't it? You want yeah. to see the things the same. So mm. I'd, I'd be interested to see if he's got any knowledge of the sort of process of CGI stuff, but I suppose that the end product is irrelevant, isn't it? Mm. And so right up, bang up to date, his next project is a, it's a romance set in the 1980s called Empire of Light, and it's written and directed by Sam Mendes, and that's currently filming at the moment, with a 2022 release date with Olivia Colman in the, the lead role. And the, the, the synopsis of this is a love story set in and around a beautiful old cinema on the south coast of England in the 80s. So Sounds fantastic. That would be like another very, Oscar win. Very interesting. Yeah. So he was appointed CBE in the 2013 Birthday Honours for his services to film. And then in the 2021 New Year's Honours, he was knighted for his services to film. Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Rockley said, Roger is a truly a great visionary of our time. His cinematography always brings depth and humanity to the screen. His uncompromising commitment to the work is unparalleled. He is a wonderful collaborator. We feel incredibly privileged that he created the stunning visual, visual identity of Skyfall. Many, many congratulations to a great master. And so a bit about his personal life. He married his wife, Isabella James Purefoy Ellis, in 1991. Now she's just uh, she's known as James Ellis Deacons. It's a bit, bit easier, a bit less of a mouthful. Or simply as James. So she does a lot of uh, post, blog posts on his website and just signs off as James. They met on the set of Homicide. She was working as a script supervisor, and then they got married later on that year in 1991. Since then, they've worked together, and she oversees the workflow of the films that he works on, and they've worked closely on The Goldfinch in 1917. In his spare time, he has a boat. He likes boating. That's on his website as well. You can find him out fishing when he's, he's back in Devon. And yeah, so since 2005, this is when he set up his website and it's got a forum. It's dedicated to an ongoing discussion of filmmakers and uh, budding cinematographers. And he shares some of his experience to people who might be interested. Um, And he answers any fan questions. And then since April 2020, he and his wife have hosted Team Deacons. There's the podcast title. Uh, Team Deacons. I've listened to a couple of these. So they've had guests in the past, Sam Mendes, Chris Corbold, and Thomas Newman. There's some Bond alumni that have been on, and I, I recommend it. It's really interesting, very in- insightful. And just a quote to finish off on Roger Deakins. He says, people confuse pretty with good cinematography. The late cinematographer, Freddie Francis, said there is good cinematography and bad cinematography. And then there's cinematography that's right for the movie. I often feel that if reviewers don't mention your work, it's probably better than if they do. So there we go. Roger Deakins, like, sir. Roger Deakins. I mean, his work on Skyfall is uh, is great. It's one of the most yeah. distinctive, di- visually distinctive James Bond films, I mm-hmm. would say. Yeah. Just just brings to mind the, the attack on Skyfall Lodge and how that's all yeah. lit. And that sort of gets echoed in 1917 later on. And also that scene where Bond is stalking the sniper um, in, in that office oh, with block. The, the LED. Yeah. Very Blade yes. Runner 2049. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And it's, um, I think it was shot in the UK to look like Hong Kong, but um, yeah, just the way that the 
reflections and the light and all that sort of plays around that's very deacons-esque things bathed in light in in, in very simple color palettes and um yeah he's just a he's just a true master of his craft right amazing and and i didn't know quite just how much he had i knew he'd done a lot but when i was looking at this going these all look fantastic Uh, all of these are stunning to look at and but like he said they're always right for the movie that he's doing so it's yeah it's, it's great it yeah. really is fantastic yeah. and you said what was it cut he did the color grading on digital color oh, grading brother, on, where art thou and what year was that 2000 2000 so without i mean that really probably helped pave the way for the work they did on lord of the rings as well because they were mm. fully color graded digitally yeah. color graded as well weren't they so he was right at the forefront of that technology then which yeah. i guess again is a master of, a, of his craft that's what you expect so uh yeah. yeah i wonder if he'll do any more bond films in the future it'd be interesting if he did it would it, it seemed like it was a hard sell getting him to do one though so <laughs> you never know d is for dayton len dayton i'm assuming you both have heard of len dayton yeah Hipcrest files Hipcrest files but i mean he is I, I knew of, I've never read his spy novels, but I knew he'd done a lot of spy novels, but novels before. But he is a tour de force of kind of just basic literature and all sorts of journalism and things over the past 90 years or so. I think he's about 92 now, but his kind of biography is absolutely phenomenal. What he's been involved with and, and the kind of people he's worked with over his over his career. He's a British author. But he's he's done stuff like cookery books. He does a lot of history and, and military history books, um, nonfiction. But he's best known for his spy novels, which started really early on, like back in the 60s. The reason that we're talking about him in the podcast is that he has quite a lot of links to Bond. I know that we spoke about him previously, about him writing uh, treatments or scripts for some of the Bond films. But he's done a lot more than that in terms of he's worked with he he knew um, Ian Fleming. He knew Kevin McClory. He's written a, a fantastic book called James Bond, My Long and Eventful Search for His Father, uh, which is sort of, sort of like a short biography that he's written about his time trying to, trying to well, his involvement with the Bond series and kind of going for dinner with Ian Fleming and meeting with Kevin McClory and all these different things. And it's a fantastic book. It's quite short. It's I think it's less than 10,000 words and you can get it for free on Kindle Unlimited. I read it during a lunch break and... If you want to ever find out about the the McClory sort of legal case and all that sort of stuff, it's fantastic because he goes in so much depth. So he was born in uh, Marylebone Bone in London in 1929. An interesting uh, reference that I found was that a chap called Anthony Master, he wrote a book called Literary Agents. And I've only just realised the connotation of this um, when we were reading it. But uh, it's about writers of a certain era, spy fiction writers who have more than just being spy fiction writers in a link to the spy world. Look at Ian Fleming and people like that, where they were actually working with it, with spies. They were, they were, their job, they'd spent time in the, in the army and the air force and things like that. And this book is about those sort of literary agents. So all these people that are actually associated with spies and stuff are writing about spies. I read a few um, bits of the book and it's really interesting. He talks about a lot of different writers that have these associations with the spy world. Well, it's like when we um, spoke about Roald Dahl, isn't it? And how he, he, mm. he'd he worked just, with Fleming. It just and... seems to be, like nowadays, 
that would be quite surprising with a lot of people. But in those days, they all seem to have... I think there's a thing about most well-educated people spent some time in the Air Force or the Army or things like that, and then they became writers, and you had to have that sort of pedigree to, to have those opportunities. And they all knew each other, and they all worked together on these different things, and they all probably knew each other in the armies and Air Forces and things like that. But anyway, he talks about Dayton um, and says that his interest in spy fiction came around, uh, it was inspired by the arrest of Anna Wolkoff. I don't know if you know who that is. This is when he was 11 and he, he was kind of watching the news about it or reading the news about it. And the his family lived very close to this, this lady called uh, Wolkoff. And she was a Russian spy, but she was, um, her and her father were quite right-wing anti-Semitic. And um, they were considered sympathizers of, the, of Nazi Germany. And MI5 got really interested in her because she was traveling back. I think she was Russian, but lived in the UK. And she was going, traveling back to like Germany and, and MI5 started taking interest in her, what she was up to. And yes, yeah, she was charged with stealing correspondence between Winston Churchill and Franklin D. Roosevelt. So quite an interesting character in the spy world back in those days. It just sounds like everything was so intrinsically linked with all this sort of spy stuff going in back in those days but that that's apparently where his sort of interest in the spy world came about and then at the age of 17 he joined RAF special investigations branch as a photographer so he started his kind of life becoming involved in the world of spies and espionage but also his world his life of creativity and um and photography and getting involved in that side of things he went to uh, art school in london after completing national service um he got a scholarship to the royal college of art also worked as an airline steward with uh, boac which was um, later became part of british airways and after that he started his sort of creative career he wrote for magazines he illustrated over 200 book covers so not just a writer, he's kind of all involved in this sort of creative space. He was an illustrator in New York and then an art director for a, a big London advertising agency. And then his career goes even deeper. He he becomes like a, uh, he wrote and illustrated a load of cookery strips for the Daily Express, which were turned into a series in Observer. And then he went to France uh, to start writing on his first novel. And that's when his proper writing career kicked off in terms of novels and things like that he wrote his first four novels which included the ipcris file which is his first big his big novel that he wrote and and the, the following novels in the ipcris file series and this was quite an interesting series to pick up because i think at this time this was the time of people like ian fleming and they were writing about these cool suave sophisticated largely upper class spies and Michael Caine, as he was in the film, he wasn't in the book, obviously, but he wasn't. He was a, you know, a middle class, almost lower class guy who was very much down to earth. And it was an interesting take on the spy novels, which Len Dayton had a bit of a an angle on, which not anybody else was really doing at, at those times. And they did really well, especially with this because of this working class hero. But he was also a bit of did a bit of everything. He he was a, like a normal man. He wasn't going around and having well. He was like a you know you know Bond has cocktails he he beds beautiful women all the time he gets amazing cars in the books the Ipcris file and stuff the hero he he's a cook he does other stuff he's he works for a, a team he's not like this all powerful super spy so he was an interesting mix uh, especially against the the kind of trend of those spy novels that were happening at the time and especially in this context against Ian Fleming it's almost like it's not an anti Bond but. Harry Palmer isn't definitely not like Bond. He's a very different type of hero, which is why uh, Harry Saltzman was interested in getting involved with that. 
he also did other stuff as well. So he he did he wrote screenplays and um, he was the producer on a film uh, in 1969 called Oh What a Lovely War. He also was a travel editor for Playboy for a bit, and he's moved around quite a lot. So he left England uh, to move overseas to, to Southern California. Um, in 1969, uh, as well as another, a load of other de- um, destinations. So he's phenomenal, had a phenomenal life of traveling around and doing such a diverse range of, of roles. And then in the 70s, this is where he st- sort of started getting involved in still talking about spies and war and stuff like that, but into the nonfiction world. Obviously, he's got all this knowledge of the wars. He's been a journalist during those times. He was a photographer in the RAF. So he starts doing a lot of sort of World War Two non-fiction books which are all really popular books he's, he did loads of uh, really insightful stuff over that period and uh, he did a novel called bomber about an rf bomb command raid over Germany. and a lot of critics say it's like his masterpiece in terms of writing and it was turned into a, a bbc radio 4 play in 1980s he did a he started a whole new series uh, which has been really popular um, it's called the Game Set and Match trilogy, uh, and I think the no- first novel is called Berlin Game, second is Mexico Set, and the third is London Match, which is quite a cool concept for a, a series of titles. And the interesting twist on this one is that it has a female spy character in it called Fiona Sampson, um, as well as the the male spy who's called Be- Bernard Sampson. So at that time, there weren't a lot of these sort of uh, well, there weren't hardly any female spy novels floating about. It was a very male-dominated genre. Since then, he's done a few bits and pieces. His latest published fiction work is a novella about the Titanic, which is in 2006, which was published in a collection of short stories called The Verdict of Us All. And his last non-fiction work was in 2012, which is where we come to Bond. This book, the um, James Bond, My Long and Eventful Search for His Father, is brilliant. I've been going to read it. If, if you're listening to this or if you're one of the presenters on this podcast... Go and read it tomorrow because it won't take you long and it is so in-depth. I'm a bit annoyed I hadn't read it at the start of doing this podcast because there's a lot of information in it which would be really useful. And it's coming from a guy who was there. He was involved in all of this sort of stuff. It's basically his involvement with the Bond saga. The whole point of this book is he was trying to work out who created Bond. That's the reason why it's looking for the father of Bond. And it comes down to Ian Fleming and Kevin McClory, two people he knew. And he was trying to work out through that that period and talking about it in this book who had the greatest influence on it and how it all panned out over that time and it has a lot of stuff in it about the sort of the court cases and all that stuff but also just things that they said to him and things about the characters and things like that it's an interesting thing he writes about Fleming he says I have heard Ian Fleming described as withdrawn and austere while others called him an eccentric the simple truth is that he was a brilliant fantasist, a surrealist almost. His wartime ideas for espionage antics were nothing short of preposterous, and so were most of his post-war ideas about how society should be reorganised. The fictional character James Bond was his screwball alter ego. Writing provided a chance to depict the forbidden dreams of his outwardly cool but morose and moody Royal Naval Officer. It's a beautifully written book. There's, it's the, the way that he writes about it is really interesting, and I've, I've, I've not seen him... Uh, I've not seen something that kind of talks so eloquently in detail about the relationship between a lot of the characters. Um, it talks a lot about Fleming and McClory and how the two, how they were so different as people and their input in the Bond saga and creating Bond was really interesting because 
he even talks about like how they ate completely different types of food and how they spoke to people was really different. Like one was Ian Fleming's a really unsocial writer, unsociable writer as you would imagine, and then Kevin McClure is like this social thespian. He wants all this sort of um, attention and he loves it all. And it's really interesting to hear it from the point of view from somebody who was there and he met these people um, yeah. a number of times. Uh, it also talks about the Harry Palmer series, which was of course produced by Saltzman and talks a li- quite a lot about. Um, how Saltzman wanted the Icarus file because he wanted something different from Bond. He wanted it to be ironic and downbeat and an alternative to the way that, that Bond was shown in the in Fleming books. This is what Harry Saltzman said. I'm the only person in the world who won't try to make your working class hero into some kind of James Bond, which is really interesting if you think about it. And then, and this and his Bond associations kind of move on from this in this in this story. So it's all covered in this book. And he talks about, um, he was asked to write a screenplay for From Russia With Love. And he even went on to a, a, a recce trip to Istanbul with um, Harry Saltzman and Sid Kane. And it just goes, it's not too much about it, but it's really interesting how they talk about how they come to decisions about the film. And Harry Saltzman's almost like a teacher to him because it, up until this point, Len Dayton is a novelist. He's a spy novelist. He knows a lot about these things. He doesn't know anything about film. And Saltzman is like the master who just hits it hard and says, don't do that, do that. This is how you should do it. So they have a really interesting discussion about Bond getting on the train in From Russia With Love. And he says to um, Len Dayton, um, Can, how would you do this scene? And Len Dayton kind of plans it out and says he'd walk on here and he'd, he'd do this. And Harry Saltzman just says, no, you wouldn't do that. You've got to show Rosa Klebb waiting for him at the start because right. then the audience is involved with him. He already knows, you know more than Bond does and suddenly you're engaged in this thing. Whereas... Dayton was kind of setting it all up as like, oh, he's getting on the train, he sees this, he talks to this person, and eventually he wrote a clip. He's thinking in terms of a novel, not as, as a book. Dayton said about this trip, the principal revelation that became clear in Istanbul was that it was the producer who created the film. The producer chose the subject, bought the story rights, briefed the screenwriter, raised the money, employed the director, and chose the actors and the technical team. Uh, and then he goes on to say, also making clear to me that if I ever wrote a film script that I'd, I'd wanted to preserve totally intact to the screen, I would have to be that film's producer, which is kind of what he did when he worked on films in his career. So he finished the script for From a Tree of Love, but he said it wasn't a disappointment. Everyone knows that screenplays are not written. They are rewritten, which is nice. It's, it's such a good book. You should definitely read it. It's so clear. He just hits these things really nicely. So then in 1975, there's a lot in the book about Kevin McClory. And Dayton's asked to remake, uh, to, to, to write a remake of Thunderball, because obviously we know that Kevin McClory could only remake <laughs> Thunderball, really, yeah. over that period, because he only had the rights to it. And it was, he, he wrote this script, but it was tra- changed a lot. Um, and even McClory apparently had Dayton go and ha- do like training sessions with his lawyers to explain to them, uh, to explain to Dayton how to rewrite a script instead of making a new script, because they had to be so careful when making this next version of Thunderball. They couldn't make it like a, a different film because they'd get they'd get sued. So he had to have like these legal discussions. So when he was writing it, it had to like be almost identical, but you'd have to make it different so that people would want to watch it. Huh. And it goes on into more depth because they they also had meetings with Connery because they remember at that time they were trying to get him back, obviously for a new Bond film. It was the same time that he didn't like Cubby and Harry. He didn't like how he was treated with them, but he wasn't happy with the script. And the original script that Dating worked on was called Hammerhead and got changed to Warhead. Eventually, we know that that script, or that film, not necessarily the script, became Never Say Never Again. But it doesn't really... We don't know how much of that actual script remained from what, from what Dayton did. 
1997, there was a discussion again that came back around the new bond rights with Sony. If you remember over that period, there was the litigation that was happening around there. Um, and, and Dayton was kind of brought back into the fold to an extent. Um, he, he said of that period, rumors filtered back to me that to speed things along, my Hammerhead script, or maybe the subsequent Warhead script with my name on it was being used. I didn't believe any of it, and I had long since resolved to stay well away from Kevin McClory's legal extravaganzas. Um, and that's all covered in the book. He talks about the problems of being involved making films and writing scripts and things when there's a massive legal battle going on. And obviously, as a writer, he's not been involved with that sort of massive scale sort of stuff before. Dayton, he's a very successful author. He's done a lot of stuff. But his spy novels never really reached the heights of Bond. I don't think any spy novels ever do reach the heights of Bond. But he's had this sort of consistent um, fame um, over time. And he's written an enormous amount of work. I think I got this off his website, actually. He talks about he, he hasn't got a knighthood, but he's, he's not really that bothered about it. He says, to allow someone to give you a knighthood is to admit that there is someone who is allowed to appraise you on a scale which you are going to agree with. The audacity of it. <laughs> um, so he doesn't. He does, he's not a man who likes being necessarily in the public eye. He doesn't really like giving interviews. He avoids literary festivals. He says that he does not enjoy being a writer, and that the best thing about writing books is being at a party and telling some pretty girl you write books. The worst thing is sitting at a typewriter and actually writing the book. <laughs> so uh, last thing just about him is that he, um, after completing the Faith, Hope, and Charity trilogy, he did. He decided to take a year off writing. At the end of the period. And then he said uh, of, of the time off, he said, writing was a mugs game that he did not miss and did not have to do. So um, really interesting character and so interestingly linked with the whole of the Bond series. I mean, he met with Fleming in 1963. They, they went for lunch together. And this was when Fleming had written loads of books, all the, all the Bond books, so not all of them, but a lot of them by that point, because Dr. No had obviously been made. And this was just when Dayton's... Uh, Ipecus file was released as a book so you can imagine you've got this i mean that time for a writer ian fleming must have been a phenomenal character to me it's ridiculously successful yeah and dayton was the opposite he had just started but they're both on the same path really but it's so interesting that book about that meeting and subsequent meetings that he had with sort of kevin mcclory and stuff like that but yeah we don't really know how much of his what he'd done was used but Mm. um well worth a read if you get a chance D is for Dane, Paul Dane. Paul Dane is a uh, writer, poet, critic, and an Oscar-winning screenwriter. And in the context of our podcast, he was the co-writer on Goldfinger with Richard Maybaum. Paul Dane is someone we've spoken about before uh, when we had Jeremy Dunn's on talking about Casino Royale. Because if you remember, Paul Dane was the screenwriter who had contributed the idea of Bond infiltrating somewhere wearing the bird on the top of his head and then stripping off and unveiling unveiling the tuxedo below so that's where we've talked about paul dane before but i'll talk a little bit more about him and in the context of goldfinger here so um interesting that you mentioned while talking about len date and this idea of the literary agent because that very much fits the bill for paul dane as well so paul dane was born 5th of November 1912, uh, educated at Shrewsbury School and went to Brazenose College, Oxford. Um, while he was at Oxford, he contributed film reviews to um, undergraduate papers. And then when he left college, uh, so when he went left Oxford, he went to move to London 
and uh, began writing film reviews uh, on Fleet Street. And he also wrote poetry. He wrote a few books of poetry. A lot of uh, Cold War influence, nuclear bomb type poetry. Some of it's quite good, actually. And lyrics, as well as something called a libretti, which I think is something to do with uh, opera. So in uh, 1939, as for many people of his generation, the war began and he joined something called the Special Operations Executive, the SOE, early in the war. And he was stationed in Canada alongside Ian Fleming and Christopher Lee, who were contemporaries of his. I don't know if he had much interactions with them, but they were certainly uh, at the same place in Canada at the same time. And he actually learns here the tradecraft of espionage and he then becomes someone who drills the spies in how to be uh, a spy talking about it in an interview he said i was an instructor to a band of thugs called the soe and i instructed them in various things on darkened estates so i got a pretty good view of what counter espionage was like and he wasn't just good at this stuff he literally wrote the manual on spying so there's a book you can get called the counter soe counter espionage manual and it's been reprinted many times really interesting and paul dane basically wrote this thing and there's stuff in there about how to kill a man who's on sentry duty and this is stuff you see bond doing on screen it's like you know grab him by the neck and you pull him down and all that sort of stuff he wrote this book basically i don't think i've ever seen roger moore use effective counter espionage (laughs) maybe sean connery um so, yeah, he wrote the book, uh, textbook, and it was used uh, in this place called Camp X, which is where they trained the British SOE, the American OSS, and then they also later trained the CIA. He then was a political warfare officer from 1942 to 44, where he became a major. And there's not a huge amount of information about it, but apparently he also took part in SOE, so SOE operations. So he wasn't just writing about espionage. He was taking part in military operations in France and Norway. And according to John le Carré, another spy author, he reckons that Paul Dane also served as an assassin for SOE during this time, but that's never been verified. And according to Jeremy Dunn's, Paul Dane's SOE file still remains classified. It's not been declassified despite the war ending wow. like 70 yeah. years ago. There's got to be some good stuff in there. Yeah. This, in 1945, uh, 1944, he met the composer James Bernard and they began a lifelong domestic and creative partnership. Paul Dane, I think, was a gay man. And I think, he, I, I don't know if he was, he, he was out because I don't think it was appropriate at the time. But uh, yeah, it's so quite an interesting character. After the war, he was demobbed. He returned to London and then he sort of continued his writing career. And this is when he started to dabble in screenwriting. So he was writing his reviews, but also writing in, in screenwriting. So he said he turned to screenwriting in order to help with his film criticism. He felt that you would only know how to criticise a film if you knew how the sausage was made, right? So that's why he turned to try write films for himself. And his first script, which was a collaboration with his partner James Bernard, was a 1950s Cold War thriller called Seven Days to Noon. And this was based on a book called A Nazi on Manhattan, uh, written by Fernando Josso. So they actually won the Oscar, him and James Bernard. James Bernard went on to be a composer and never wrote another screenplay. So it's clear that, you know, Paul Dane did the lion's share of the work on this. But interestingly, this film ends with a nuclear bomb being diffused. So there's a race against time to diffuse a nuclear bomb. And obviously this later becomes echoed in Goldfinger. Obviously, I don't know if you can claim that he was the man that came up with the idea of a bomb having to be diffused at a climax of a film. But uh, it's definitely one of the earliest examples of it. 
this is this is a quote from Paul Dane. He said, after the Oscar film, I thought we'd be rushing around writing for everybody. But actually, two years went by and we did nothing at all. So he went back to doing his film criticism. But then he wrote a few uh, well-received short films and then what well, while reviewing and then returned to features in 1958 with a script f- for a film called Orders to Kill, which was set in the French Resistance. 1959, he was approached to write the screenplay for Thunderball. According to Ian Fleming, he turned uh, Paul Dane turned it down because he wasn't interested in this bang, bang, kiss, kiss stuff. So that's uh, 1959. And then he said, in in the same interview I quoted earlier, he said, when I joined the Daily Herald, I was offered by Anthony Asquith, a dear, dear friend of mine, the film Orders to Kill, because I'd had this experience during the war. And it was about an agent who went out to kill a man and found that he couldn't kill him. And this, along with my other experiences, led to Goldfinger. So Goldfinger was the James Bond film produced in 1965 and the initial plan was for Richard Maybaum the longtime Bond screenwriter to adapt On Her Majesty's Secret Service as the third Bond film but they had to cancel this plan because of the weather that they needed in Switzerland wasn't they just basically weren't gonna be able to film in the right time of year in Switzerland because obviously that's a very snow heavy film so Maybaum instead wrote the first draft for Goldfinger and then a screenwriter called Berkeley Mather wrote a second rewrite. And this is when Paul Dane was brought in by Harry Saltzman for further rewrites. How much of his stuff remains in the film? It's hard to tell. It's a co-credit with um, Richard Maybaum. But the idea of him with the seagull on the, on, the, on the top of his head clearly came from Paul Dane. That's at the start of the film. It was also Dane's idea to have Bond discover the body of Jill Masterson covered in paint. Because I don't know if you've read the book, but it, that happens in the book, but it's not depicted. It's sort of a, you know, and, and we found her like this. But in the film, Bond discovers her like that. And that was Dane's idea to do that. And also he was the one that gave Odd Job sort of his super strength, you know, the power to crush a golf ball. He also possibly, I'm not sure how true this is, but it, apparently it was his idea to give James Bond a gadget laden car. So it could be Paul Dane responsible for one of the most important Bond tropes there is, the um, mm. you know, the Aston Martin DB5. Basically, his ideas brought the idea of fantasy to James Bond. And really, when you look at Dr. No from Russia with Love and then Goldfinger, Goldfinger is the one where it strikes gold, right? It, pun intended. The fantasy element comes in and it sets the template for the rest of the Bond films, for better or for worse, right? Guy Hamilton, who was the director on Goldfinger, he said that he felt that Paul Dane was lucky to share a co-writing credit with Maybaum. And Maybaum himself later said of Paul Dane's strip, uh, Paul Dane's draft of the script, he said, It tends to get very Englishy now and then, coy, arch, self-consciously tongue-in-cheek. It's lost the aspect of dead seriousness we had in the other two and parts of the script sound as if it were written for Bob Hope and not Sean Connery. So Mm -hmm. he obviously brought some humour into it as well. Uh, Connery himself said he was concerned by the humour in the script. um, But, you know, most of a lot of it remained and has now become a staple of the of the series. Interesting that we we all consider, you know, Goldfinger to be the turning point and how much of that is down to... Paul Dane. It's hard to mm. say, but it's got to play a big part in it. So after Goldfinger, Dane adapted the John le Carre book, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, and also another John le Carre book, The Deadly Affair. I think it's also known as Call for the Dead. And he also wrote a couple of um, Shakespeare adaptations as well. Talking about doing The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, have you seen that one? That's with Richard Burton. 
No. no, that's another sort of stripped back uh, spy film. I do love the John le Carre books of that era. So he talked about that. He said, I'm one of those writers who likes darting about from one type of film to another. And when I collaborated on Goldfinger, I wanted to do a truthful, a truthful spy movie, a spy story instead of a fantastic one, which is why I did The De- Spy Who Came In From The Cold and The Deadly Affair. So after that, from 1970 to 1973, he wrote the uh, he co-wrote the four Planets of the Apes sequels, uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, and Battle for the Planet of the Apes. I'm not really good story. That have you seen all of those? No, I haven't actually. No, like plays around in a big circle. So like the whole story comes around, and you start to realise things from the other films that happened because of the last films. Very clever chronology. Yeah, mm. he wrote the four of them, and they were released in f- four consecutive years. So, um, yeah, I definitely want to definitely want to visit those. I'm sure they'll be on Disney Plus soon. But now that Fox is part of uh, of that, I'm hoping they'll be on. Yeah, I mean, they're soon. a bit of a, they're a bit of a slog. The story the story's good, but watching the, all of the films is quite hard. <laughs> Uh, so then in 1974, uh, Paul Dane adapted Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. And bonus points if you can tell me the two Bond alumni in that. Uh, Sean Connery. Yep. And Albert Finney. Albert Finney mm. from Skyfall. But he, he was... Yeah. Um, uh, he. I was going to say Clouseau. It's not Clouseau, is it? It's... Um, Poirot. Poirot, that's it. Yeah, he plays Poirot. Clouseau. <laughs> Man. Anyway, Paul, Imagine. Paul, Paul Dane was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay at the Oscars, but he lost out to Godfather Part 2. And then sadly, 1976, he died age 63 from cancer. Apparently he was a heavy smoker. And yeah, that was it. So he died in 1976. But yeah, Paul Dane, a very small part in the Bond world, but could be a very crucial, important mm, um, very exciting uh, mm. person. And also very much part of that world, that literary spy uh, Roald Dahl, um, Ian Fleming, world, very, mm. uh, very interesting. It's I, what it's quite nice this podcast because quite often we'll have a theme that runs through the podcast that is completely unplanned. Yes. So <laughs> normally the themes will be like around a view to a kill or something like that. It's just quite a nice theme running through this one with the actual history of like the the the, the real legacy of Bond and the people that were involved in the. The, the spy and espionage, espionage world. So, uh, yeah, this will go down as one of my favourites for quality of content. Well, let's uh, lower the tone then and pass over to Brendan. <laughs> as always, <laughs> let's lower the tone by passing over to Brendan. D is for Demby, Max Demby, also known as C, played by Andrew Scott in Spectre. So there you go. I've just shot everything you've said to flames. Uh, well, uh, well. Uh, before you start, uh, I've got an interesting fact about um, Andrew Scott. Uh, normally, Butler's always showing off about his uh, name famous dropping. people he's met. Mm. Andrew Scott used to train in the gym with me, and many a time I've done bench presses in the uh, machine next to Andrew Scott. So there Ooh, you go. Did you spot him? Uh, it was before Bond, so um, <laughs> I didn't bother. I think I think I got. Wait, did you spot? Right. Did you spot for I, him in the gym? Yeah, that's what I meant. I, 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 didn't, I didn't mean did you yeah, spot I, him. I Look at you. as I was saying it, but you no, I didn't, didn't spot him. <laughs> you did no, spot him, spot but him. you didn't spot him. I, sp- I spotted him, but I didn't spot him. But I think by that point, well, you, you'll let us know. But I don't know. I can't remember what he was doing before. Moriarty? Before Bond. Moriarty? No, before then. Oh. Way before then. Go on, Brian. Okay, so first off, we'll start with Max Denby before we head to Andrew Scott. So he was a corrupt, he's a corrupt director general of the Joint Security Service. 
the organisation that are merging MI5 and MI6 together. Heavy plot point in Inspector. Just a side note, in real life, C is the code name of the head of MI6. Did you know that? No, did not Absolutely know that. didn't. Yeah. Yeah, MI6 started as the foreign section of the Secret Service Bureau, and the first director was Captain Sir George Mansfield Smith coming, who dropped the mm. Smith and used his initial C as his code name. So. You better have that right, because we'll have loads of emails on that if you got it wrong. <sighs> I've cross-referenced that, and if it's wrong... <laughs> <laughs> I'll be fuming. Usual, usual email address, people. <laughs> right, so yeah. It's, uh, the film, the way this inter- he interlinks with Bond is Bond has been in Mexico City, returns to London, and he's taken off duty by M. M is currently in a bit of a power battle with Denby and trying to sort of stop the cuts that are, that are be- being made. Um, and C... Denby also wants to create Nine Eyes, uh, which is this intelligence uh, system that uh, across nine countries, which closes down the need for a double O section and is uh, complete total surveillance. And so as the film goes on, when Bond is Blofeld's prisoner, he finds out that Denby is actually an agent of Spectre and is about to... You know, if he gets this nine eyes access, Spectre have access to this massive surveillance system. And so he escapes the base and they get back to London and they meet with uh, M, Tanner, Q, Moneypenny, and they, they need to take C down, basically, and stop nine eyes going ahead. Denby arrives. He can't activate the program uh, because his access is, is denied. Um, and, and it's Q that's stepped in and, and made sure that he can't he can't get into that system. Yeah, so he realises that the Secret Service know that he's with Spectre and he takes a gun out of his desk and, and plans to kill M. Uh, and this, this is where that famous line comes in because uh, C says, oh, I know that M stands for moronic and he pulls the trigger, nothing happens. M reveals that he's emptied the gun prior to Denby's arrival and responds that now they know what C stands for as well. Mm. Careless. Not not what not everyone's thinking. Head of MI6. That's the... <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, he's holding uh, C at gunpoint. M is holding C at gunpoint and at the top of a staircase. And this is where he tries to... They have a struggle and uh, Denby loses balance and he drops over the ledge and he falls to a death. Quite... Relatively gruesome, I think. It's quite a slam yeah. to the floor, isn't it? Yeah. And then Tanner, your favourite butler, Tanner confirms the death of Max Denby. Great Tanner. Fantastic scene for Tanner, that. Yeah. <laughs> Oscar-winning scene for Tanner. <laughs> um, and so Sam Mendes says, there was a long period in the script, and this is months before we started, where it actually flipped, and it turned out that he was the person who was running the show, the person Bond had been looking for all along. Blofeld didn't feature in that version of the story. It was a long time ago, but it was a very easy figure to find parallels for in the contemporary political world. Would have made more sense. Yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a very... I, I always... I don't think... Don't know, I don't know if you want to go through what we think of um, we'll the character, that, but... Save that for... Well, we, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
I well, I'd just say with with um, I just don't think that character is very well created in the in the film. He just. You know he's a baddie from the start. It's, yeah, it's like Andrew when Scott. It, when, when, when the, when the yeah, twist exactly. happens, you're like, well, yeah, I know that. Yeah. It's not really a, a thing, is it? Um, and I just don't think Andrew Scott is the right person for it. He's, I, I, I think the whole Moriarty thing kind of messed it up a bit. Yeah, it's provided him with a bit of baggage, hasn't it? Yeah. He says, I'm sorry, but to be in a James Bond film is just really cool, right? And do you know what? I actually enjoyed it much more than I thought I would. It was glorious. With a real proper script and real proper acting, Sam is such an exciting person to work with. He made it feel as though we were putting on a play, albeit with around 500 people standing around watching us rehearse. Yeah, so the the way he got it, basically Sam Mendes wanted him, wanted to meet up and discuss this, the possibility to work in, and um, he called his agent back immediately and you know, was, was keen straight away. So Andrew Scott, born in 1976, is a... An Irish actor, born in Dublin. His mum was an art teacher and his dad worked at an employment agency. While he was at college, he would take weekend classes at drama school uh, and he appeared in two adverts on Irish TV. One of them is Probably on... Probably went U- to the gym a couple of times as well. <laughs> but th- this early on? Yeah, I could I could sense it when I was in the gym with him. He'd been doing it a while. He knew what he was doing. Good form. <laughs> Um, so there's one, one of these is on YouTube. If you want to have a look, it's Flahaven's porridge advert. If you just Google that, have a watch. Um, very, da- very dated. So that was at the age of eight. And then at 17, he was chosen for a role in his first film called Korea. 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 Could be either. And he won a bursary to art school, but he chose to study drama at Trinity College in Dublin. And then he left, left after six months to join Abbey Theatre, which is in Dublin as well. And so he's putting the training in and he gets a small part in Saving Private Ryan. Did not know he was in Saving Private Ryan. No. Um, but yeah, so that's in 1998. He then takes another small part in a film called Nora with Ewan McGregor and a TV adaptation of Henry James's The American alongside Diana Rigg. So Bond alumni. He was cast with... Michael Gambon in Longitude. Have you seen Longitude? Nope. Oh, that's that Antarctica thing, or? I think so. Yeah. I remember seeing the posters for it. Yeah. Uh, And he was also in Band of Brothers, but he has described the atmosphere on that as awful. Oh. (laughs) Uh, It's a very enjoyable show, though. I think it's great. He received his first Olivier Award for his role in A Girl in a Car with a Man at the Royal Court. He has won a lot of awards. He is very, very well decorated. He made his Broadway debut opposite Julianne Moore and Bill Nye in 2006 in a production of Vertical Hour, which is written by David Hare and directed by Sam Mendes. Ah. So that, that, that's where they first worked together. He appeared in HBO miniseries John Adams. Have you seen this? This looks quite good. No. I mean, anything HBO, it's that big budget, isn't it? And they really yeah. go, go into detail. Yeah, so he, he played Colonel William Smith in that, which has got Paul Giamatti and Laura Linney in it. And then he starred in 2009 in a sellout run of Cock at the Royal Court with Ben Whishaw, Catherine Parkinson and Paul Jessen. So Ben Whishaw, another alumni. How many times are you going to say alumni today? As many as I can. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and he's played Paul McCartney in a BBC film called Lennon Naked. And I've always thought that he's got a bit of young McCartney 
to him mm. in his looks. Yes, yeah. So yeah, he's he's already done it. And then 2010 is probably where most people sort of were made aware of him. It's where he plays Moriarty in Sherlock, the BBC drama Sherlock. And Cumberbatch said, I was thrilled when I heard they'd cast Andrew. I'd been a fan of his stage work for years. I knew him a little socially through mutual friends. As an actor, his choices are always alive and unexpected, but even better than being a fierce and unique talent and raising my game. I have to say, I think he was perfectly cast Moriarty. The way he plays, oh yeah, he's brilliant. It's so yeah. disturbing and unhinged. Well, it, the the Sherlock series is sort of theatrical, isn't it? In, in mm. its ridiculousness, and he he yeah. plays a very good theatrical baddie. Yeah, which yeah. is I, which is why I don't think it works, Inspector, because he's too theatrical. He's, mm. He doesn't seem like a real threat. He just you'd see him and go, "I don't want to talk to you." <laughs> He's clearly trying to do something bad. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so in 2015, he stars Inspector. 2017, he takes the role of Hamlet and wins a nomination uh, for an Olivier Award for Best Actor. Mm. And in 2019, so this is another uh, role that most a lot of people will recognise him from, and it's the uh, the Fleabag. priest in Fleabag, which is created, written, and starring Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Another, another Bond alumni. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> Um, yeah, the hot priest. I mean, everyone was raving about that at the time. Um, mm. Another, it, another great role for him to to take. He's good in that. You got to wonder whether if he hadn't been Inspector, whether he'd be one of those people that'd be like, oh, he's going to be the next James Bond. Because no. he's got the look, he's got the talent. He hasn't. He has. He's dark haired. <laughs> that's that's not the look. That's the <laughs> colour of hair. <laughs> I think he would. If, be. if everybody with that colour hair was on the list for the prospective James Bond, you'd have a lot more people on it. <laughs> I think he would be. I'm just putting it out there. Yeah. Well, he's never been on any list I've ever seen as a suggestion. No, because for he's, Bond, been so he's, he's been seen. He's been seen. Spectre. Has he? What do you mean? Probably didn't take very long. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? He's he was C Inspector. Oh yeah, yeah, but not yeah. He's a baddie. Yeah. Yeah, but he's already been. So, th- th- of course, you're not seeing him in lists. Oh, yes, that's true. You can't have him in again. No. <laughs> Even before then, he was never on. He was never. Be- he was never. No, because sh- weren't. Because uh, it was. Uh, they weren't looking. Right, look, let's it move was, on. Anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> he said. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah, so that series of Fleabag won. Phoebe Waller-Bridge won Best Actress in a Comedy TV Series at the Golden Globes. And she said, this really comes down to Andrew Scott. That man. There was a lot of talk about the chemistry of us in the show, but he could have chemistry with a pebble. So high high praise there. Maybe she brings him back in No Time to Die. Well, I'd use that same phrase for somebody who's boring. <laughs> They'd have chemistry with a pebble. No, because you'd be the pebble, wouldn't you, if you were boring? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then in 2019 also, uh, he appeared in... An episode of Black Mirror, Smithereens episode. Which one was that? Remember that one? It's the the Uber. Is it the Uber driver one? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, He also is in 1917 as Lieutenant Leslie. Yeah, yeah, briefly. Yeah, great lighting. Great lighting. Yes. (laughs) Uh, He plays Colonel John Parry in the HBO BBC adaptation of. His Dark Materials. Yeah. And 
wrote most recently he's been in the pursuit pursuit of love playing lord merlin which is a bbc drama comedy have period you, have you period, seen this? period thing period, yeah period no, thing new yeah. missed that one new so his personal life he so andrew scott is gay he first commented publicly on his sexuality in interview with the independent in 2013 he said mercifully these days people don't see being gay as a character flaw but nor is it a virtue like kindness or a talent like playing the banjo. It's just a fact. Of course, it's part of my makeup, but I don't want to trade on it. So yeah, he's quite secretive about his private life. Um, lives with his partner in London, and that's as much he's willing to go into into detail with. So yeah, that's Andrew Scott, Denby, Max Denby, D- Max Denby, rubbish C. buddy. <laughs> <laughs> D is for Dink. Just Dink. She hasn't got a second name in Goldfinger. Is that even a first but, name? <laughs> well, yeah, it's a nickname, isn't it? Well, it might be a first name. It's a strange one, isn't it? Mm. Um, but Dink is, you will both know Dink. Any Bond fan knows Dink. She's um, She doesn't have a massive part in it, but she is very well known in the Bond films for a variety of reasons. And interestingly... Her link to the Bond films goes further, slightly further than the role that we know her for, and that's as the she's sort of a masseuse in Goldfinger. She's I don't think it's an official masseuse. I read a few articles where they call her the masseuse, but I think it's just a lady that's massaging Bond. I don't think she's professional, and she's uh, yeah she plays that role in Goldfinger. It's not she's not in for very long. It, there's a fan, it's a very good scene actually, but it's also one of the most contested scenes in terms of Sean Connery's sort of uh, machismo and male chauvinism um, in his films as he uh, Felix Leiser walks over he's getting massaged and he sort of says to her can you go now uh, man talk and slaps her on on the behind and uh, makes her wander off and she just sort of kind of smiles and walks off which is uh, it's, it's quite a well-known sign of the Sean Connery era of Bond films that you just couldn't do in the later Bond films and especially now I mean imagine doing that now but also, interestingly, Margaret Nolan, who who played Dink, who sadly died in 2020, she was the main sort of body within the title sequence. Ah. Which I didn't know. I think I kind of had a vague knowledge of, but I, I didn't really put two and two together. But yeah, she's when you watch the title sequence for, for Goldfinger, it, it's Dink, uh, who's been painted, and she's got the images of Sean Connery and um, Honor Blackman lit across her body as that title sequence goes on so yeah a little bit about uh, margaret nolan as a character because to be honest there's not a lot to say about dink apart from that one scene she was an english actress a visual artist and a glamour model although she's best known for her, her appearance in goldfinger fans of the carry on series will know her very well because she she's in a few of those actually um, and she's also in a hard day's night and, she, and as well as a lot of tv programs from the 1960s to the 1980s some good some not so good she was born in Hampstead, London. She started training as a teacher and she began dating uh, Tom Kempinski. Uh, do you know who that guy is? Nope. No. You'll know his face if you saw it. He's quite a, I'd say, not so much a famous actor as a well-known actor. Like, you know his face from films and TV v series and things like that. He, um, If you saw a picture of his face, you'd instantly go, yes, I do know that face. I just can't remember what he's been in. From that relationship, she decided to get into acting because Kempinski was uh, the National Theatre Company. So he kind of persuaded her. 
She was also a glamour model. She was known as Vicky Kennedy for a period in the 1960s when she was a glamour model. But when she started taking on more acting roles, she became known as Margaret Nolan. She did, as I said, she did loads of television shows, theatre productions and films. Some of them I've never heard of, um, so I'll go through the list of those a bit later on. But she appeared, interestingly, in the first episode of, in the first episodes of The Saint with Roger Moore. So another link to uh, Bond alumni there. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I, I've read quite a few articles about how it says that she was an, a- an actor in Goldfinger and she also did the scenes in the title sequence. But I read an interview with her as well where she talks and she says she actually was a model who was hired to do the title sequence. And she said she'd only do it if she got a scene in the in the film. Interesting. So that scene is a result of her doing the title sequence and it wasn't a decision to add her to the title sequence afterwards. So that led on to her uh, and loads more modelling, obviously. Uh, she was in Playboy magazine's James Bond Girls uh, edition of uh, in November 1965. She was in Carry On At Your Convenience in 1971. And interestingly, another Bond fact, the composer Eric Roger references um, the fact that she was in Goldfinger by using the three notes from Goldfinger, the song, I'm assuming it's the Sneaker Pimps one, well, the one that they covered. Uh, it, it plays three notes when there's a close-up of her in the Carry On film, which is interesting. I might try and find that one. I couldn't find it when I looked earlier. She was on the front cover of uh, the US and UK versions of the 2005 book by Robert Brown John called Sets and Sex and Typography in 2012. And she talks quite a lot. She did an interview about her modelling and because when it comes to movies and the female form and stuff, a lot of references go back to that sort of era of films, especially the title sequences to Bond. So she's in a lot of interviews where she talks about how she felt about being in those sort of film, the, the title sequences and all that stuff and being relatively nude. As she, I don't think she was ever actually fully nude. And that has led on to her becoming a bit of an artist. So she worked on a lot of things in later life where she kind of pulled together images of her career when she was a model and like modified them a bit and changed them a bit and it was more of a kind of a look into the female form and how people view the, the female form i don't know a lot about art so i'm not going to go into too much detail about that she did some work with uh, spike milligan on the bbc and she did a she published a short essay in 2007 and 2013 about her time working with him which is quite interesting she talks about how what it was like to to work with work um, with Milligan and his depression and how he was like to work with, um, and in fact she did a live reading of this at the Poetry Society in Covent Garden, and What's on London said uh, it was a deeply personal memoir. Her performance simply magical. Um, haven't been able to find that so far, so if any listeners can find that, let me know. Other Carry On films she did, Carry On Girls, which contains a scene of Nolan in a silver bikini. I found that, I don't know why that's important. And Barbara Windsor, she has a catfight with on the hotel floor in that film. <laughs> Interestingly, in 2021, uh, Edgar Wright cast her in the film Last Night in Soho. So I don't know too much about the filming of that at the moment and if she actually managed to do any scenes for that. I'm assuming so because it doesn't say anything that she, about her not, not doing that. And in the last part of her life, she moved to Andalusia in Spain and she moved to a farmhouse where she focused on permaculture, which is apparently one of her big loves in life, um, as well as becoming a visual artist, which is when she started doing all of her all of her artwork. I also found out, and there's not much about this, so I can't find anything where people have talked about this, but she's been associated with, she was in Vertigo 
And she was also in Frenzy. So she's got a link to uh, Hitchcock films as well. I don't know how much she did in those films. I've definitely never noticed her in those films. But it's definitely an interesting link to be in the Carry On films, the Bond films and the Hitchcock films. It's quite a quite an impressive filmography to have behind you. And the TV things that she's done include, I've mentioned The Saint, Danger Man. She was a bit of a, a glamour girl at the time. So she, she was in a lot of shows as a sort of glamour model. Des O'Connor show, Morecambe and Wise show. She was in Steptoe and Son, which is quite a famous episode called A Star Is Born. Whatever Happened to the Lightly Lads? She was in Last of the Summer Wine, The Sweeney, Brideshead Revisited, Crossroads she was in, um, and, a, and a TV show called uh, Carry On Forever. So, yeah, quite an interesting career for uh, Margaret Nolan. And, yeah, I think one of the most well-remembered Bond girls, pro- perhaps largely because it was Goldfinger and everybody remembers everything from Goldfinger because it's such a good film. But, yeah, I just think... Um, Amazing to be in that film as a, a, an actor and um, work with Connery, but also to be the title sequence as well. Such a big part of that film that most people probably don't even know about. Yeah, I, think, I remember when she died, I think Edgar Wright wrote a really nice tribute to her online, talking about her visual artwork. But yeah, real icon. Sad, uh, sad, that, she, sad, sad that she died in 2020. Mm-hmm. wonder if she does make it into uh, Last Night in Soho, which is a nice segue into the next section, actually. D is for DiVincenzo, Tracy DiVincenzo, as played by Dame Diana Rigg in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, the 1969 James Bond film. So Tracy, Contessa Teresa DiVincenzo, I mean, there's no arguing about it. She is one of the all-time great Bond girls. Mm-hmm. She um, is the only Bond girl that 007 officially and legally marries in the films. Uh, she's a very complex character. Uh, initially she's suicidal she's love starved she's a spoiled rich girl but later develops into quite an interesting character especially when she sort of gets together with bond and later becomes more involved with the action herself so 007 as played by george lanesenby he rescues tracy from the sea uh, where she's attempted to kill herself on the portuguese coast pulling her from the sea she sort of i think it's is it her father's bodyguards that then tackle bond i can't remember i think what the i think that's right isn't it Mm -hmm. she rejects his advances because she thinks that bond is only trying to get into the good books of her father mark ang draco who we'll discuss on a later episode um but yeah so they then become romantically involved and later she's captured by blofeld but then later rescued by James Bond. Um, and then at the end of the film, they get married and then she gets murdered. So Tracy originates in the Ian Fleming 1963 novel of the same name. But as Raymond Benson in The Bedside Companion points out, she's not actually that well fleshed out in the book and she gets she has a better portrayal on film. Bond's grief for the loss of his wife uh, in the book is said to be an echo of Fleming's loss. He lost a lover during the war at Muriel Wright, who apparently died suddenly in an air raid. And it's thought that that loss of Fleming's inspired the plot point in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. So when they were casting for Honor Majesty's Secret Service, they imagined Tracy to be French and Bridget Bardot was met with three times on the third time they met with uh, Bridget Bardot, she told Harry and Cubby that she was going to make Shalako instead with Sean Connery. 
Someone else they looked at was Catherine Deneuve. And then they went to Diana Rigg um, in the end, who at the time was appearing in The Avengers. Talking about the character, Diana Rigg said, I suppose she's a bit of a mixed up lady. I think she's much more dimensional than most of the other women who have been in Bond pictures. The thing that attracted me to this part is that it's got many more facets than just being attractive. So uh, we'll cover a lot more on, on, on the Majesty's Secret Service and then on the Lazenby episodes about how George Lazenby came to be involved with this film. But he was an untrained actor. And so Peter Hunt invited Diana Rigg and George Lazenby to have a dinner together and to judge their chemistry together to see how they worked um her as an actor him as an unprofessional and she was then to feed back to peter hunt the director on the film what she thought of george lazenby after the dinner and she told him that he'll be fine she said many people when they find themselves in a completely new world face problems that they're not which they're not prepared for George Lazenby will get over them because he's resilient, young and very, very good looking. I think he fits the role very well. He's not trying. He's not earnest and he doesn't appear to be very frightened. He's very flip and that's going to be the most successful factor. So she thought his inexperience was going to help him. Years, years later, looking back on it, Diana Riggs said, they got me on board because I was to add gravitas to George Lazenby. They had to have an actress on board because Lazenby was totally inexperienced and I've no had no illusions at all as uh, and that's that's why they got me and I did what I could I have to say though that the money was wonderful it was a mammoth, mammoth production an epic and I'd never done an epic before so I wanted to know what it was going to be like to be in an epic because when you think about it a lot some of the actresses in the past were, were just models right they just brought mm. models in to play opposite to Bond but this was a true actor with her own fan base as well so she was sort of there to shore lazing me up yeah it makes, it makes you think doesn't it if Connery had continued what who they'd have got to to fill that role would it be somebody with a lot less well, credibility and well if she wanted to work with Connery it would have been Bridget Bardot right she oh, was yeah. the one that, um, that that they were looking at so that would have been a very different film and would it have had the same impact who knows so Lazenby and uh, Diana Rigg had a brief flirtation before the film started so they sort of um, you know got together shall we say mm-hmm. and she said you know if you don't fall around with the other girls maybe something can happen and we'd had a little bit of a little bit of a kiss and cuddle one night, but that's as far as it got. So they'd had this sort of liaison. She said, you know, don't mess around and we could maybe make a bit more of it. But when they got to set on one day on set, she caught him in a stunt tent, uh, having it away with one of the production secretaries. Mm. So um, it's amazing that was... you get into a relationship with somebody by caveat and going, if you don't pull any other well, women, you might you, we might get together. And like, well, you shouldn't really have to tell have him to that. say that but he was a bit of a playboy that was how he got the role right he was a real ladies man yes, and yeah. basically he would just look at women and they'd fall over apparently that's what, according to him so later there was this famous incident uh well while press were on set and diana rigg uh, was shouting across the set saying that she was having garlic for lunch before a love scene and she was ho- she hoped that george would too and they, the press sort of picked this up as sort of a, a spat between the two of them. She was having garlic because she was pissed off with George Lazenby. But later, Diana Rigg said it was sort of more of a joke. Um, and Lazenby also said that it got blown out of proportion. Lazenby said she had a way of doing things and I had mine. She was more complicated than I was. Diana Rigg said of George Lazenby, he was just difficult. He kind of thought of himself as a film star immediately. 
So an interesting thing about Diana Rigg on the film, uh, she did the driving, she did some of the driving on the uh, stock car racing sequence, you know, on the ice. She actually did some of the driving for that. Mm. And she really loved the opulence of shooting the film as well. You know, it was like nothing else. Definitely very different to shooting the Avengers, which I imagine would have been shot on a shoestring budget. She said, I've never been in anything so extravagant. The money they spent, I came from subsidised theatre and suddenly I had to look at a watch. So what do they do? They sent me to Kensington Market and came up with boxes for me and i just said that one so it just sort of talks about the sort of um, the money it was being spent so by the sort of the final scene where she gets murdered lazenby really thought that she he was getting to grips with the act the whole acting thing but diana was still not very convinced and apparently when she had her head in his lap and he was having to look sad and forlorn she was biting him on the leg trying to make him cry (laughs) it's quite a famous story from that i don't know why that would make you wait make you make you uh, make you cry it's probably not the reaction they wanted. Somebody, I think if somebody was biting my leg, I'd probably just shout. Yeah. Uh, and one thing I always remember about On Majesty's Secret Service is she, she has some great scenes with Telly Savalas. I think that's the stuff that really yeah. comes to life in that film. Well, that's is when two she's great with actors, isn't it, working together. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So looking back on the film, Diana later said, I did the best I could, but oh dear Lord, he had a perfectly good chance. And he wasn't bad in the film, was he? It was perfectly good. It was just that he was impossible to deal with. That is a classic example of somebody who doesn't know how to deal with fame and got it wrong. And again, we'll deal with that later on when we get to Honor Majesty's Secret Service and George Lazenby. But he never returned to make another Bond film. So Diana Rigg, Dame Enid Diana Elizabeth Rigg, was born in 1938 and sadly died last year in September 2020. She was born in Doncaster. Her father moved, was born in Yorkshire, but worked in engineering and moved to India. And so um, their family was living in India when Diana was to be born, but the mother moved back to England to give birth to Diana. They actually moved back to India. She lived there from the age of two months old to eight years old, and she actually spoke Hindi as a second language for those years. She returned to England to attend boarding school and was an actor, trained actor at the at RADA, the Royal Academy um, of Dramatic Arts. To, from 55 to 57, classmates included Glenda Jackson and Sean Phillips. She then jo- had roles in the Royal Shakespeare Company between 57 and, 59 and 67. And obviously, most famously, from 65 to 68, appeared in The Avengers as Emma Peel in 51 episodes opposite Patrick McNee, another Bond alumni, <laughs> as John Steed. She was obviously very, very prolific. So I won't go into full details about what she appeared in. She did a lot of play. She did a lot of TV. She did a lot of films. She was a member of the National Theatre Company at the Old Vic from 72 to 75. She appeared in tons of films, including The Great Muppet Caper in 1981. In 1989, she played Helen Vasey in Mother Love on the BBC. And she won Best Television Actress at the BAFTAs in 1990. She won an Emmy for appearing in as Mrs. Danvers in a TV version of Rebecca. Uh, famously, she appeared in a, the second series of Ricky Gervais's comedy series Extras. She starred in an episode with Daniel Radcliffe. 2013, she starred in an episode of Doctor Who written by Mark Gatiss, a, Doctor, uh, a James Bond um, fan, it's worth saying. The episode was called Crimson Horror. It was a Matt Smith and Jenna Louise Coleman episode. And then... Probably her most famous uh, later role, she was in Game of Thrones playing uh, the Queen of Thorns, Lady Elena Tyrell. She was the grandmother of Marjorie Tyrell. She was nominated a ton of times for Emmys. I don't think she ever won the Emmy for it, but she was killed off in the seventh series 
and was just fantastic part of that whole show. I don't know if you both watched that, but yeah, she was great. Uh, Diana Rigg was married twice. First to Menachime at Goofen uh, from 73 to 76 and then to Archie Sterling from 82 to 90. And with Archie, she had a daughter, Rachel. Rachel, interestingly, is in a relationship with uh, Guy Garvey from Elbow. And together they have Diana Riggs' only grandchild, a son. Diana was given an OBE in 1988 and was made a dame in 1994. So Diana Rigg died in 10th of September 2020, aged 82. Her daughter said that the cause of death was lung cancer, which had only been diagnosed in March. So it was only a short battle with cancer. And so she will appear posthumously in Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho, which should have been released last year, but will be released in 2021. Uh, It's a horror film. So Edgar Wright wrote a really good piece for The Guardian about working with Diana Rigg. And I'll just quote this a little bit from it. He said, she was such a formidable performer that she raised everyone's game as soon as she stepped on set. And so funny and wry too, often bringing a carrier bag full of quality street for the crew, which frankly all actors should do. Since she'd lived most of her life on a film set or stage, she knew exactly how to enter, be note perfect and utterly incandescent for the cameras and also, crucially, to be out of her makeup and in her car 15 minutes or less after wrapping. So it's a, fan, it's a fantastic piece on The Guardian, well worth, um, I might put the link on Twitter uh, when this episode goes out, but he talks about recording ADR with her at home when she was very sick, and this was sort of in the middle of COVID, I think. But he managed to take her a bottle of Campari, and they managed to have a few Campari and sodas together, and, you know, a full professional, she managed to do it, even though she was basically on her deathbed. So, um, yeah, that's um, Tracy De Vicenzo, Diana Rigg, one of the greatest Bond girls of all time. I think we'll all agree. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. I mean, I, I, I thought she's one of the, the greatest British talents since the Avengers. But um, I think in terms of Bond, she's like, I don't even know if any woman who's been in a Bond film has reached the heights of of what Diana Rigg did. She was so rounded and so complex as a character that I not maybe not so much towards the latter part of the film, but she still held on and she was a really... She, when she was better than Bond in that film, wasn't she? Her character mm. was so much more defined and interesting than, than Lazenby's Bond in that. Yeah, she was absolutely fantastic. But she's got her own series. Yeah, bring her back. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. This has been uh, quite an interesting episode for us to record. It's been sweltering hot. I think we're all ready for a breath of fresh air mm-hmm. now. Pint. Um, yeah. <laughs> and a pint. But uh, if people want to get hold of us, how do they email us? Who wants to take that? Podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk Or on the socials. At jamesbondatoz on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Got some exciting news though. We have some specials coming up. Diamonds are forever. Is that exciting news? (laughs) And die another day. More exciting news. I'm away. I'm away on holiday. I can't do it. Well, we'll find someone else. But um, yeah, I can't wait to get stuck into those two uh, films. Also, we've got Doctor No as well to look forward to very soon as well. So, yes. (laughs) And we've got some great guests lined up as well, um, who I'm really looking forward to talking to. Um, So, thank you so much for listening. Uh, James Bond A to Z will return next week. Thanks a lot. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler. Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley. With music by Tom Ingramels. 
and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.